So the lecture you're about to hear is Psychology 3196, Human Evolutionary Psychology, taught by me, Dr. Dave Broadback, here at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Uh, this is for the fall term in 2022. I had to think about that. I just recorded this intro and said 2023, which is wrong. And then I dropped an F-bomb and... Uh, Probably not the best thing to do to start. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy it. Hope you get something out of it. And if you don't, well, that's on you completely. A kid. But it really is on you. Right, so this is our final topic. You guys take over next Tuesday. Uh, so if you haven't had your topic approved and picked out a time, you might want to get on. So today I'm going to talk about, I guess we'll call it social psychology. I call this social science. Uh, somewhat disparagingly is the wrong word. It's not being disparaging because more that I don't like to get through this sort of distinction of social versus quote natural science. We're mostly talking about group living, group behavior, behavior in groups, etc. So we're going to look at sort of social psychology and the study of culture in one class, which obviously, you know, you do that typically in more than one class, but whatever. So these are big traditions in psychology. This goes back, those of you who have taken or are taking history of psychology know that, you know, Wundt talked about what he called Volk psychology, which kind of means, kind of means social psychology, does not really? So going back, way back, and this is the same thing, the study of culture, in fact, the study of social psychology and culture, that's what Wundt meant when he talked about Volk psychology. He kind of meant cultural anthropology, in a way. hard to tell. But anyway, this goes back to the beginning of psychology. So this is, these aren't new ideas. Looking at this isn't something that we would consider ridiculous or radical in any kind of way. The way I'm going to talk about it today may be a touch radical, but not as much as it used to. Because mostly this kind of stuff will ignore evolution. Not always. Not always. Um, but mostly. Mostly it does. And that doesn't make it bad, by the way. <laughs> so, because we study something that's a life science, we study the behavior of organisms, that's what we do, behavior and cognition. Um, while everything evolved, and there's, it has an evolutionary history, it doesn't mean every single time you do a study, every single time you do an experiment, you have to have the end. What are the fitness consequences of this figured out? Because that's just not how the world works. You, you usually have one small problem that answers one small question. Or so one small experiment that answers one small question, one, one problem, whatever. So that doesn't make it necessarily bad. I'm saying that mostly it's something that is ignored. And the nice thing is this gives us uh, the opportunity to take a look at certain phenomena with fresh eyes. So that's cool. All right. So. Here's a question I don't think you hear much you know, when you talk about social psychology, though I don't know because I've never taken a social psychology class. 
Out of curiosity, how many people here have taken social psychology? Okay, so at least one person knows more about social psychology than I do. Because I, I literally haven't taken a class. I taught in an intro. Last time I taught intro, the second half of the intro was uh, 13 years ago, so it's been quite a while. <laughs> Nonetheless. So I'm no expert in social psych, that's for sure. But I don't think it starts out typically on the first couple of days saying, why are we social? Most animals aren't. Most animals are not. They don't live in groups. Most animals, you have the young and you leave. Let them fend for themselves. So why be social? Many species, and I think it's probably safe to say the majority of species, are not actually social animals. Right? Now, dogs are, for example. We know a lot about dogs, but because a lot of us have dogs, and humans evolved together with dogs. But like cats, for example. House cats are not social animals. They literally, you hear this a lot. Oh, my cat needs a friend for when I'm gone. No, it really, really doesn't. What you're going to end up with is fighting between cats. <laughs> you're not, your cat doesn't need a friend. Your dog might. Dog's probably going to be fine. But the, you know, in nature, cats all, no, they don't. There's one social cat. It's the lion. Do you have a pet, one pet lion? If not, you don't need another cat to keep it company. And if you're, keeping, if you're keeping lions as pets, you've got a whole other series of problems that are about to hit you when they get old enough to, you know, eat you. A lot of species, and I, would, I think it's pretty safe to say most, aren't social. Selfish herd. The selfish herd is this idea that being in a herd, being in a large group, it seems like you're doing this to all get along and all help each other out. And the easier simp and simpler explanation is if they catch you, they can't catch me. Right? That's like the old joke. The bear is chasing two guys, and one guy bends down to tie up his shoes, and he says, I, you know. Your shoes aren't gonna, isn't going to help you run faster than the bear. It's like, no, I just have to run faster than you, not faster than the bear. It's really pretty simple. So it's the selfish herd phenomenon. It's a real thing. It also makes sense if food is patchily distributed. In other words, it's not even. It's in big patches. And those patches are relatively large. It doesn't make sense to be social if food is just generally available everywhere because everybody's happy. I don't have any reason to communicate with anybody or be nice to anybody to help me get food, right? If it's patchily distributed and food isn't very common, I don't want to tell you about it. I'll take it for myself. Thank you. On the other hand, if food is patchily distributed and those patches are really big, 
like they would have been in the EEA, like they are in Africa to this day, in, in the rainforests and among the savannah. Then it actually is sensible, because I can't eat all this food in this food patch. My family could, though. My family are related to me. Well, I guess I should probably. So that makes sense to be so. And where we evolve this, where humans evolved, this is, the, this is exactly what the food situation was. So we always have to look at the, oh, please, go ahead. Don't. Same with like water. Right? Well, water's gonna play a role as well, yeah, sure. Because um, savannah, in the savannas of Africa, there's like water in pools. Yeah. Exactly. No, it, it basically the two, besides air, water and food, the big resources, water's almost always gonna be sort of patchy, patchily distributed, unless you live literally on a lake. Um, Food's going to drive it more, but yeah, water certainly would matter as well. We always have to look at the costs and benefits. So the costs, or the benefits have to outweigh the costs of being the benefits of being social. If there's little predation, you don't get any safety in numbers. And that safety in numbers, again, isn't because you can fight back. It's because if they catch one of you, they don't catch you. <laughs> they catch somebody else. So if it's all of you guys, and they eat you, that's fine, because I'm still here. Actually, no, I don't want you to get eaten. I'm going out on a limb. I don't want any of my students eaten by saber-toothed tigers. It's a controversial position, I know. Or if you encountered small pack, and again, Typically, the way food was distributed in the EEA, and it still is when it's hunter-gatherers, frankly, we don't end up with really small food patches. A small food patch is there's one tree that has some fruit in it every couple of kilometers. That's the kind of small I'm talking about. Right? Whereas the forest canopy in Africa, if you're thinking about that, or you think even about on the savanna, there's grasses everywhere and animals. There's stuff, there's stuff to eat. Things really being weird today. Our closest living relatives, the chimps, are social as well. They live in groups. So it's a pretty good guess that we would be, and it's obvious that we've been social, well, probably been social since the chimps and us went our own separate ways between five and seven million years ago. So it's probably the case that. Our common ancestor was social as well. Right. So what was life like in the EA? We can only guess. We can make pretty good guesses, but we can only guess. There have been more predation than there is now. There's not a lot of predation of humans anymore. There are animals in Africa that can eat people. Like, not anymore. They don't do a lot of eating the people anymore because people have much more powerful weapons now. And cell phones. All you have to do is call, call the next village over and say, you know, watch out, there's some lions. All you take care of. Um, the patches of food would have been really large, we, we can guess. And it's a pretty, I think, a pretty safe guess. 
So it's the right conditions to be social. The other side of it is, if you're social with others, you can prevent them from sort of screwing over. You can prevent them because we all know that each of us can remember each other. We have theory of mind, I can look at you and say, I know roughly what's going on inside your head. Not completely, obviously, but I can make a pretty good guess as to you know, how things are going as far as when I do this, you'll behave like that. Just straight up theory of mind stuff. So not only do we defend ourselves against predation, and we have large but actually distributed food, large packs, but they're distributed all over. It also makes sense to be social for humans because we can then keep track of when others are nice or not nice to us. And we've got a whole bunch of adaptations for that. Just, and I've mentioned this many times in this class, we're extremely closely related for mammals more than any other mammal except for cheetahs, but look around, we all look quite different. It would be very difficult for us to miss, just look around. Frankly, yeah, I can't see anybody here that I can say I can mistake you for you. And I can't even see that. Right? Again, still thinking about the EEA, we almost certainly lived in small bands. How do we know this? We know this by looking at contemporary hunter-gatherer peoples. Right? And we know this by looking at um, the fossil record and seeing where we get groups together. If you remember the video that I had you watch for the, the very beginning of the course about the cradle of humanity and all that this great stuff, um, they find these burial sites that are full of bones. You don't bury people together if they weren't living together. Right? So we can look at the fossil record, but we can also just look at hunter-gatherer groups today. Let's see this. It's usually small bands, you know, around 30 people, maybe fewer. 30 to 50 is the numbers that it's here bandied about most of the part, for the most part, rather. You probably can't keep track of more than about 50 people in your life. So you may have 10,000 Instagram followers, but you don't know about 10,000 people. Okay. And there would be varying degrees of relatedness within this group, which would make sense. Um, these family, these groups, these sort of yeah, groups of hunter-gatherers would almost always be related more or less to each other. So it's groups of Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, lots of cousins. Everybody would be somebody else's cousin. And if you go to a smaller, isolated part of the world today, in Canada even, you will see that. I lived in Newfoundland and Labrador for six years, and there were towns where, you know, you could get there by boat. That's just how you got there. There was no other way to get there. Uh, and in those places, a lot of times, I mean, I remember even in bigger centers, like I remember looking at my class lists and half the class either had the last names Pike, Penny, or Payne, which is the way it was, right? 
people are cousins, maybe second or third cousins, but they're cousins. And that's even in a modern in modern days today. So it'd be pretty common. Pretty common. So that's how people live today. And people are more social with people they are more closely related to when people study hunting. The thing is, there aren't very many hunter-gatherer groups left that are untouched by non-hunter-gatherers, I guess you'd say. There are some. Uh, some that you should avoid. You should probably avoid all of them. I didn't ask for you to meet them. There's that group in the Indian Ocean on those islands, and I forget it, but people keep, now and then every 10 or 15 years, some person goes, I'm gonna go teach them about God, and they get killed by those arrows. And I don't know if I'm gonna say I like that. But they didn't ask for you to show up, buddy. They live in the Indian Ocean. There's food, there's clear, okay. You don't have to go teach them your religion. Yeah, can. Anyway. Ah. So there's an odd set of people like that. Uh, there are a lot of people that who are now studied um, in the Amazon, for example, which it looks like won't be destroyed after all. Um, the election they just had in Brazil. <laughs> and when you look at these groups. And there are groups in the Amazon, especially, who are quite used to being, interacting with anthropologists. But the anthropologists, obviously, are very sensitive to those folks. And what ends up happening is they get taken into the group, and they don't have any problem with being studied. And you get these situations where when people are more closely related, they're a little more social with them. They're, they're, they're more likely to lend them things, stuff like that. that these groups are then is they're in essence giant uh, extended families. So we're talking about kinship here. And one of the ways that I can tell someone is my kin is by knowing that I grew up beside them. My sister must be my sister because why else would there have been a, a baby who showed up when I was nine years old? must be my sister, right? So while we may not be able to directly detect kinship by looking at somebody, especially when we're very young, we can do it simply by having a mechanism that works like this. Uh, I grew up beside this person. This person, therefore, must be a brother or sister. There's a lot of evidence for this when you look at anywhere where children are, are raised communally, where you have a whole bunch of people, the kids are raised communally. So an Israeli kibbutz is a great example here because they've been around for 100 years-ish. So there's all kinds of data. Uh, and people don't, from the same kibbutz, don't get married. A kibbutz is a big collective farm in Israel. Okay. And um, people do this voluntarily. It's, it's, there's a, political angle to it too, but that's beside the point. What happens is the kids are raised communally by people whose job it is to raise kids. Like it's like the ultimate daycare kind of thing. Uh, 
So all the kids live in similar, like in sort of barracks, if you want to know. We barracks, it makes it sound bad. Living quarters, it's over that. But they see their, they, they see the other kids and they see their, their caregivers, not their parents, more than they see their parents. They don't marry people from the same kibbutz. It doesn't happen. Well, it's, it has happened 16 times in 100 years. So it just doesn't happen. So you can tell about kinship by knowing I'm beside, I grew up beside this person, they must be my kin. And of course, in that case, they even know they're not their kin. But these mechanisms override everything else, basically. We cooperate more with kin. There's data on that like crazy. You're much more likely to lend money to a relative than a non-relative, for example. It doesn't matter if you are a hunter-gatherer or if you're none of us. None of us are hunter-gatherers. Now, who are you more likely to be aggressive to? You're much more likely to be aggressive to people who are not your kin. You're much more likely to kill people around you. Did brothers kill each other? Yeah, it happens. The kids kill their parents? Yeah, it happens. The parents kill their kids? Yeah, it happens. But think about our reaction when we hear that someone has killed a family member. We're really, as a rule, completely freaked out by something like this. It's like, ooh, how could you do that? I'm not saying we all like stranger killings, because we don't. But if you look at brothers versus brothers-in-law, brothers-in-law are much more likely to be violent to each other than brothers. And like I said, just look at the reaction whenever you get a situation where somebody is aggressive to or kills somebody in their own family. Compared to, not that people go, oh good, another murder, but, <laughs> but people do say, don't get completely freaked out, whereas you do when two kids kill their parents, which was a, there was a, even a big trial, it was, got all kinds of media coverage in the late 90s, the Menendez brothers killed their parents. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. Okay, yes, we did, because they were abusing. None of that was true. They were just bad people. But anyway, we get freaked out by people who kill their own family. Like, we have a, a, almost not a disgust reaction. I don't know if that's technical. But we definitely are affected by it a lot more when we hear about stories like that. So what are the proximate mechanisms for these things? Well, the first one, like I said, there's probably some mechanism for conflating kinship and association. In other words, I grew up around this person, they must be my sister, they must be my brother. There has to be some way I am detecting that you are or are not my relative. And one way is the association. Another way, might we talked about MHC, there might be ways to do it that way. 
it's cool though because when you look at friendships, which are kind of like substitute families, when you look at friendships and you look at the blood type of people's friends, their friends have more similar, are more likely to have the same blood type as they do than their non-friends who they also. How are you detecting your friends' blood types? I don't know. We do it, but I don't know how we do it, and no one really does. But there's data on this like crazy, that the closer you feel to somebody, the more likely, the more related you tend to be. It's why. So it will be a little bit over, you know, random chance. That's work, um, the, the, the friends and the blood type, that's Anne's story, S-T-O-R-E-Y, uh, who used to get money, goes to a different land. Pretty sure she's retired by now. She was in St. John's and I was in Cornerbrook. So one time I went out there to give a talk and then her and I, or she and I rather, went for a, uh, we went for a walk and we found, oh look, there's an iceberg. Because in Newfoundland sometimes you just look out and see the iceberg. So, we said, let's go get some ice off the iceberg, and, and then we'll drink gin and tonic with ice that's mostly fro frozen, you know, mammoth pee. So, and then she said, yeah, we gotta cut through this person's yard. I said, no, it's easy. All you do, we're scientists from the university. And she said, well, yeah, but. I said, no, 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 yeah, but. We're scientists from the university. You just walk right through. If anybody says anything, just follow my lead. So we just, we have a cooler. And I'm, I'm wearing a shirt, a, a, a hoodie, actually, that said, you know, uh, Memorial University. It also said Department of Psychology, which probably would make people think, why would you care about icebergs? But that doesn't matter. I'm walking along. We go for this person. I, I, then I see somebody open up their door. And I just immediately said, as you can see, this is a, a type D7 iceberg. I made that up. But if you say things loudly with confidence, you can do almost anything. Right? You ever crash a wedding? You just walk in. You see there's a wedding going on in the hotel? Just walk in. Just walk in, go up to the bar. Hopefully it's a, it's a, it's a free bar, like an open bar. If it's not an open bar, just leave. No, no good wedding has a cash bar. Just walk up and say, I'll have seven gin and tonics and a beer. They don't, the bartender doesn't care. Slip them a five dollar bill, give them a good tip for your eight drinks. And eventually, you probably say, you probably, you know, you're not in this wedding, are you? Not really, no. That's when you leave. What are they going to fire you? Yeah. Anyway. If you've learned one thing, just pretend like you belong. How do you think I got this job? But anyway, what else can be a proxy mechanism? Hmm. Maybe there's a, maybe, like, so we think about this stuff with blood type. What if there is a gene that makes a characteristic but also makes a mechanism for detecting that characteristic? That's the quote green beard phenomenon that I had, there's a reading there. Ah, uh, that's theoretical, there's no green beards. Just keep that in mind, but people can dye their beard green, whatever. But there are cases like that in bird song, things like that in cricket song, where in the male it makes the, the, the signal, in the female it, it, it helps detect the signal, so it's possible. And we do it. Finding the mechanisms is, is one of the cool things. So 
when we think about reciprocal altruism, this is the idea, and I've, I've talked about this before so far, is that you scratch my back, I scratch yours, but if you defect, in other words, if you're mean to me, I also defect and I don't interact with you, right? So your default position in any social interaction is be nice, but then respond in kind always. And then we can actually do things that might, moment to moment, reduce our fitness, but increase yours. Because overall, they're increased both of ours, because later you'll be nice to me. There's not a lot of cases where we can think, in the long run, something is just altruistic, that it makes, it, it puts you in more danger. There's all kinds of data, this is a great, there's a lot of fun, because you ask people, do you think people can be altruistic? My answer is usually no, people aren't. But they act like it, so it's fun. The ultimate example of this, giving blood. You're literally giving physiological resources to a, to a stranger. You don't get any choice into who the blood goes to give. Okay, and people give blood. You know you're more likely to give blood if you can put a little badge on, a little button on that says I need blood. So you can tell people that you gave blood. So you get mating opportunities with people that think it's cool for people to give blood. Uh -oh. Sounds pretty selfish to me. <laughs> right? So, and that's one of my favorite examples is that it just, it's the ultimate example. And it used to be people said, well, yeah, but people give blood. Yeah, they do, but they're more likely to give blood. If you literally just tell them, just give them a little button that they put on. Why do you think they give you the little buttons, the little stickers? Make more blood here. Some places also give like actual like, tangible incentives. Oh sure. That you could you could get paid for it. You can get money. I know in the states you can sell your blood, which is just so American, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, I hate to shit on the states. Uh, hate's not quite the right word, but there's too much anti-Americanism probably in the world, and people overreact. But you can't sell your blood here. I'm just saying, you know, and that's good because rich people aren't selling their blood. That dingbat who just bought Twitter didn't get $44 billion by selling his blood. He got it from the Saudi Arabian government, so they can kill more people. But still! So, this is great. I love this when we have something that looks like altruism, but then we break it down and go, it's not. I'm not saying people aren't altruistic, but they usually aren't. There's usually something in it for you, too. Again, why do you think people are given, I gave money to X thing, whatever that thing is, so uh, whatever it calls, you get a little button. You know, you go to the grocery store, would you like to give $2 the other way? Yeah, sure. Would you like to fill out this little balloon you can hang up? Not really. Because I, whatever, the people do that. That's the reason they do it. You're more likely to give if you get a tangible thing, even if it's completely symbolic, because it makes you look cool. So we're going to help if we, we're going to get something in return, and if the cost is low and the payoff is high. There's very little cost to holding the door for someone. It looked like I was looking at you telling me to leave. That really wasn't <laughs> I'm sorry. That's it. Get out. Um, there's not much cost to that. 
payoff's good. I look good in front of all kinds of people. Hey, look at Dave. He holds doors for people. What a guy. Possible high payoff here. I come out of this looking good, and maybe I'll get some help in return. So maybe some other time, Amber holds the door for me. Most of the things that we do that are sort of look altruistic, there's very little cost to us. Holding the door. Me, I don't know. Somebody saying they have to, like somebody coming in late for a test and there's nobody left, nobody's coming in, me going, yeah, I find me five more minutes. I wouldn't normally do that. Don't count on that. Public helping all things being equal is much more likely than private helping because I can show you that I have it. You then see what a wonderful person I am. In fact, we're, we're very enamored with the idea of the lone, lone wolf kind of good Samaritan. So much so that we hear stories about them, right? That gets covered in the news. So you'll hear about, oh, so-and-so was, was at, a, at a bus stop and someone went after them. And some guy came out and fought off the attack. And he disappeared. Who is the mystery man? We get all excited about that. We don't get nearly as excited as that same guy just calls 911 on his cell phone and the cops show up and arrest that person who's harassing or beating up people we get really excited about it because it's not incredibly common to help privately. Public helping is different. Like, if there's a lot of people out there, okay. But when you hear about the lone wolf Good Samaritan, you hear a lot about that person. Okay. Remember a case in Toronto, literally, that was when I was in grad school. And I remember the, the woman and her kid were being uh, robbed by a, a guy at a bus stop and some good Samaritan who nobody ever found came along and just beat the hell out of the guy and left. And it was like, we have a Batman now? You know, but no one ever found out who it was. It was just some guy who did something and left. That's extremely uncommon. It's extremely uncommon. Public helping, all things being equal, is more likely. So we can't ignore the idea of the singular hero. That's a, that's a real thing and it does happen. But we're much more enamored with it than we are because we're, it's like, that shouldn't happen. bias, racism, and group bias, of course, the idea that your group, whatever that group is, is right, and the other group, whatever that group is, is wrong. 
and you extend it not just to the thing you're interested in, but to all things. My father was convinced that all fans of the Toronto Maple Leafs voted conservative and were racists. All of them. I don't think he really thought that, but he'd say it routinely because he was not like a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So if he was here, he could defend that, and you would almost believe him because he had such a powerful personality. Well, yeah, that sounds right. Not racist, they all hated, uh, just against uh, Francophones. That would be his thing. All right. So we, all, we, we favor our own group. We just all do that. It's ridiculous and stupid, and you should be aware of it. We do it all the time. You can ask any group of people that offer your course, are people in our program smarter than people in whatever other program? You will get a majority of students going, yes, of course, which is just a crock of shit. Obviously, it's probably pretty much evenly distributed. We all do it. Hey, I make jokes about other programs too, you know, like uh, all the other ones. So the thing is, though, this, and this is really, this can be extremely uncomfortable kinds of conversations, but we have to have them. And if we can understand where some of this stuff comes from, we can fight against it. Because people die. Okay? Hundreds and thousands of people have been killed in, in, in Eastern Europe in the last eight months because one asshole thinks that his idea of those people aren't as good as us. People go along with it. This should be dense. I'm saying Russia and Ukraine. And I'm blaming it entirely on Russia, not on Ukraine, because blaming the victim is really stupid. So, but if we understand this stuff, maybe we can deal with it somehow. But it's, they're not fun conversations. In-group bias becomes bigger when group membership is more obvious. I encourage you to go to a sporting event. And people either wearing the jersey of their team or with scarves or having signs. Whatever. We tend to look for badges. And you might say badges. We don't need those stinking badges. But no one got the reference, and I don't care. A good shorthand to know if I'm closely or distantly related to you is, do you look at all like me? And I will be nicer to people who look more like me. So this is the thing we look for, these badges. And it used to be that, say, people's skin color, for example, or their hair color, or the language they speak, or the gods they worship, or whatever, that these things, probably a long time ago, and by a long time ago, I mean like 100,000 years ago, maybe even up to 10,000 years ago, were pretty reliable. If you didn't speak the same language as me, you're probably not closely related to me, because we're all living in these groups, yeah, 50 people. If you don't wear your hair a certain way, if you don't have the same skin color, whatever, 
think of all kinds of things that would be very reliable badges. Very reliable. So people's behavior changes when they're told that person must be from that group because of some badge. So if I see a bunch of people walking under a Nazi flag, I'm pretty sure I know that they're in a different team than me. So if I have a queue, that's a pretty reliable queue. Seems to me if you show up at a place where people are waving Nazi flags, you're probably a racist. You're probably a Nazi. Most of your top Nazis don't go, oh, I'm not going to hang out with Nazis. They kind of like each other. So our reaction to others, if we are given a reliable cue, can change drastically. Right. Now the problem is a lot of times here we're fighting literally millions of years of evolution and maybe in the last five or 6,000 years, and probably a lot more recently, most of the badges become not very useful. education, right? You have to explain to people, and there's a, there is a reason I keep saying we're the most inbred set of mammals other than cheetahs. I keep saying it over and over again. It's not just because it's a cool fact. It's, I think, something to understand about humans and the fact that we have a shared humanity. And there's, we're more, way more similar than we are different, all of us, even though, again, looking around the room, we all look very different, but we're all really closely related to each other. Much more closely than you would expect. The idea that there are universal people, the idea that we just talk about humans, not about individuals. So, and just to, maybe I'll go back, go back to that other slide just for a sec. Oops, not that one. This one. Oh, not that one, I said. This one. So, skin color is not a very reliable batch. There was a time when it probably was. At that same time, however, did you ever run into people who were looked at differently than you? Probably not. Right? So was it the case that if you were, uh, if you looked like me, you ran into a lot of people who looked like you? Just wasn't a thing. Just wasn't a thing. But we're already set up to detect difference. That's a pretty stark difference. If you're smart, there's a way to get around this. Well, it's two prong. First of all, the idea of education, saying about talking about how we're universally just people. It's an extremely important thing. But to find other common ground. I don't, I'm not talking about common, find common ground with Nazis. You should punch Nazis. But you can find other common ground. One of my favorite things where this ever happened was in 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president. He was a black guy. Pretty hard to miss. Some people said, well, maybe that would not make him unelectable. Some people wouldn't vote for somebody who looks different. Yeah, that's true. I think we all know that's true, too. But he did win two elections pretty handy. How did he get votes from people who literally are today called Obama Trump voters? People who literally now vote for the polar opposite. He talked about shared humanity. 
commercials of him with his kids. And I know this sounds gross, but saying, hey, look, he's just like us. Of course he is, he's a person. But sort of almost explicitly saying that, I do, I think they had an evolutionary psychologist on their campaign. Actually, knowing his campaign, it was run so well, maybe. But I think people in advertising, people in marketing and PR know this today, that you should show commonalities between individuals and you know, let's say, using the product or trying to sell political candidates. All right. Let's talk about culture a little bit. Start with that by talking about culture. Uh, and I, I, I said I thought it was not a very good explanation for where behavior comes from. No, the social world influences us greatly. I mean, it'd be ridiculous to say anything other. But if cultures are made by biological beings, like all of us, which they are, they didn't just come out of nowhere, we have cultures. So if the pattern of behavior and thinking in a group, that, and that's a pretty good definition of culture, I think, that comes from the individuals in that group, right? So can you reconcile the sort of standard social science model and evolutionary psychology? Well, first off, you don't reject one at a hand and the other at a hand as far as their results go. Because frankly, I don't care about someone's theoretical perspective as long as they did good science. I can, I can reinterpret their results, but at least I can understand them, etc. But the question is, can you reconcile these two approaches? And I think you can. Um, evolutionary psychology is about how society, over very long periods of time, has influenced us by selecting for certain characteristics. We can then make predictions about what kind of mechanism should show up in different groups uh, or individuals, or just all of us. We can make some guesses, make some good guesses. Just because one set of things has, like I said, avoided or ignored evolutionary history, and the other group maybe ignores a lot of results, doesn't mean either of them have ideas always that are bad. It doesn't mean that their science is poorly done. They just more about interpretation. So in fact, I would never, in evolutionary psychology, would deny group cultural differences because they exist. <laughs> it's, it's patently obvious. Some are small, some are huge, right? We have some international students in our class, and things that would have worked at home don't work as well here, even in a school situation, right? I know with a lot of, say, for example, international students, I, they have trouble calling me by my first name because they were told for years, don't call them, ever call your teachers by their first name. But you can even look within the country. My wife, 
is from today. Her teachers were all called by their first names. Starting in kindergarten, that's just their name, which I think is actually a lot more healthy, but that's it. Whereas when I was a kid, I got in trouble for knowing a teacher's name. I literally was sent down to the principal's office because I knew my teacher's first name. How did you find out? I don't know. What kind of question is this? Another time when I just left, my dad used to say, they can't fire you, just leave. When I get detention, I just go, yeah, I'm not doing that, and leave. It's so fun having parents you know will support you, because you can just tell your teachers, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong, and if you have a problem with that, I'm going to leave. So they're definitely called, I see them all the time. I get emails and I read it and I go, why are you talking to me like this? Oh, you're into res you think that's very respectful. It actually doesn't make a difference to me. It makes me feel weird. <laughs> you know. Whereas if, and again, it doesn't make one wrong or one right, because if you went the other way, it would be weird. Same thing, right? We have to play them up either. For the most part, there are, well, there are differences between well, let's even just stay within Canada, Quebec, and Ontario. There's a hell of a lot more similarities. I find the similarities more interesting and fun. Other people find the differences more interesting and fun. Both of those points are fine. There is cross-cultural psychology, which is a fascinating field that looks at these things. I'm more interested in our shared humanity. I just don't think that this is the only explanation for differences. It's the differences between groups or different populations. And a lot of times what we're talking about here are differences between, say, younger people and older people, uh, men and women, those kind of things. I mean, we can look at something like attractiveness and contrast effects. The, the point is that every culture, doesn't matter what, this is something that's cross-cultural, they may have different beauty standards pretty common. But if you show them a bunch of people who are not great looking according to their beauty standard and then someone who's just a little bit better looking according to their beauty standard, they'll find that person tremendously good looking. It's just a contrast with that. Even though it's a small contrast, if all the others were, let's say we had people in advance rate them one to say 10 on attractiveness and you show them a whole bunch of things that everybody agrees are with, with right around five, and then you show someone who's a seven, they get rated by the person in the experiment maybe as a nine or a ten. And that's cross-cultural. What, what is thought of as being beautiful may be different, but what is, but the, the, the contrast effect is constant, for example. What's the domain of evolutionary psychology? Hmm. This is something that a lot of people who do evolutionary psychology and a lot of people who learn about it miss. <laughs> we can only look at things from an evolutionary perspective if they have fitness consequences. Some things don't. And if they don't, or the consequences are so vanishingly small that they don't matter, 
using evolutionary explanations isn't going to help you. Right? There's stuff out there that has no fitness effect. Um, and there's even stuff that's universal and seems on the surface to have no fitness effect, and it still might have one. And music actually fits into perhaps both of these things. It might have no fitness effect, or it might have a fitness effect, but it's hard to tell. What's a potential fitness effect of making music? And by the way, all cultures make music. All human cultures make music, which is kind of cool. It's something we all do. Yep. So music is often tied with uh, cultural gatherings, right? For sure. It's always a part of celebrations or festivals. Often, yes. So it, you could say that it's tied in with the benefit of those things, which is, sure. you know, yeah. I guess enhanced uh, group identity. Could, could enhance uh, in-group, out-group sort of thing. It yeah. also could enhance, think about it as a, maybe a mating ritual kind of thing. You know, girls like lead guitar players. Just made that up. I know most guitar players think that. I can tell you they're not interested in bass players. As a rule. See, so you hear a lot about what you just said makes complete sense, and I hear it. I also hear about the idea of mating, the, the mating thing, other possibilities. Anything else, how music could enhance or attract, I guess, from fitness. Those are the two I, that you usually hear about, but any others? The problem is there are cultures who make music but don't make music that has anything, they, 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 make, sorry, they make music but there's no, what's the word I'm looking for? Okay, let's, yeah, let's do it down. It's the case that when surveyed, some cultures don't find music attractive or unattractive. They just find it pleasant or unpleasant, it's fine. But it's not ever thought of as, ooh, that, that's really hot that that person can play the accordion. This, by the way, that's something that no one has ever said. But there's music everywhere. There's this idea that maybe music fits, it has a whole bunch of characteristics of things we like, but it in and of itself doesn't do anything. So maybe it's like Stephen Pinker says, auditory cheesecake. Cheesecake, we didn't evolve to go after cheesecake. Except it's full of fat and sugar, must have fat and sugar. Right? But there's no cheesecake gene. But, you know, we, we need fat, we need sugar. Music might be like this. It's the rhythmic aspect of it, maybe. Who knows what it is? The repetition. But those are things that for some reason humans like, and music has all of them at once. So maybe music itself doesn't actually enhance fitness at all. But maybe it has a lot of characteristics of other things that enhance fitness. You can see how this can get really complicated. And you want to talk more about this. Uh, uh, Dwayne's been interested for years in sort of the evolution of the brain angle on music. So you might ask, for, ask, ask about this stuff. So is evolutionary psychology pessimistic? Well, it's only pessimistic if you think the naturalistic fallacy is true. The word fallacy should tell you right away it's not true. 
But if you think that when someone says, is something fitness enhancing or not, then that's what people should do. It's prescriptive in that way. Yeah, then it's completely pessimistic and horrible, except that that's not the way it is. It's an environmental theory. It's not about biological determinism. It's saying the environment selects for things that work. I think we can get a new understanding of things like, say, education and homicide and racism and all these things if we look at them through this sort of lens, if you want to use that term. It's actually really optimistic because I'm saying, well, I can change this. If you know about something, you won't, and then you know that you can think about it, reason that it's not how I want to behave today, you can decide not to. Unlike every other animal on this planet, we can know this. And if we know it, we can change how we behave. So instead of saying, I'm going to avoid that person because they look different than me, you can say, oh, I see, that's probably coming both from the fact of my socialization, but there's also some weird deep down thing. However, chances are nothing bad's going to happen. In fact, it's almost completely, it's vanishingly unlikely that anything bad's going to happen. So I'm not going to cross the street. So I'm not going to be afraid to ask some person for directions. I'm better than that, and that person's better than that too. That's a very powerful thing. It's a very optimistic worldview, is that if I can know where my shitty behavior comes from, I can change it. Just because something is, quote, natural doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it it is. This is the biggest criticism here is saying that, that you always hear about this is, oh, you're just trying to say the status quo is the way it should be. And it really isn't. It's saying this is how the world works, and here's why. And if I tell you here's why, you can change that. So like I said, I think it's an optimistic view of the world, not a pessimistic view. And it certainly isn't a biological deterministic view. If anybody tells you that this is biological determinism, they're just not paying attention, and all they've done is read some blogs. Questions on this? Because we even have time to play it. We could do a little bit of QA for the test if you want. All right. So let's pack that up for now.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved, so you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called Podsafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.